Colossians chapter 2, please. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to spend time worshiping you through song, prayer, giving, fellowship, and time in your word. Help us to humble ourselves before you. We pray, Father, that your spirit would magnify the truth and point us to you and your son as we consider these passages of scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I actually was looking through my calendar the other day, and it said mulching day. And I had no idea what was, why it was on my calendar, because I didn't put it in there. So I'm guessing that uh, Lynn put mulching day in my calendar. And then I was sitting there just a couple of moments ago and heard about this mulching day. And it just so happens that my opening illustration has everything to do with using garden tools like rakes and shovels. So now, I don't know if you've had this experience at one point or if you can remember that far back, when you started using rakes and shovels and you started to, to get blisters on your hands. Um, that's, not, that's not a happy experience, is it? It's a little frustrating, it hurts a little bit. And then if you keep using garden tools, eventually you stop getting calluses. Uh, wrong. Stop getting blisters because you start to develop calluses, right? Uh, and that's kind of a good thing. You're, you're happy that your hands are acclimating to using these tools. Uh, so in just a few weeks, we are trying to help you to develop calluses on your hands on mulching day. Come and join us. I also remember when I first started, no, I, I didn't continue, so to my shame, I started to learn to play the guitar. And if, if you know anything about playing a guitar, when you first start, um, when you're pressing your fingers down onto these metal strings, feels fine in the first few minutes. But after a, a little while, your fingertips start to hurt a great deal because if you don't press hard enough, it's really a, a, a terrible sound that comes forth out of the guitar. So I remember going through this and, and pressing on them and, and it actually was, was pretty painful uh, to play until calluses started to build up under your fingertips and then it was fine. It didn't bother you at all to do that. Some of you have had that experience and, and have continued on and, and thus playing the guitar uh, is easy as far as uh, there's no pain involved in that. There are also, in addition to physical calluses, there are also emotional calluses that we can develop over time. You've undoubtedly experienced some of those as well. And calluses emotionally can really cause us great, uh, a great deal of trouble. What we have to understand, what is important for us to understand, is that a gospel culture, we've been talking about that a lot, a gospel culture must bind our affections together. A gospel culture must bind our affections together. In other words, uh, give us a, a love and a desire and a care, a goodwill toward one another, a consideration toward one another. Here in Colossians chapter 2, we have some understanding of this binding that takes place, this uniting that takes place in our lives as, as God is at work. Paul writes to the Colossians, beginning in Colossians 2, 1, 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me, seen me face to face. So he's saying, all these believers I'm hearing about, whether in your assembly, in the neighboring town, and anyone else that, that has come under the sound of the gospel, has embraced, embraced the gospel, I have this, this struggle for them. Not struggle with them, struggle for them. And he goes on in verse 2. Here's my struggle. That their hearts, all of these people, may be encouraged. How? Being knit together, bound together, in love. The re result of this encouragement from this knitting together is to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. There's a lot there, and we are not expositing Colossians chapter 2. But just notice that his, his desire for these churches is that they would be lifted up, encouraged, by being knit together, which resulted in a, a fostering of their faith in Christ. It resulted in firmness, at the, in verse 5, firmness of their faith in Christ. This unity that results in our hearts from a gospel culture. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. We have a number of scripture passages we want to look at this morning for the sake of encouraging our hearts and minds toward proper affections toward one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, we see this, this gift, these gifts that God has given to the church. This happened because Christ led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. And in verse 11 and following, it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that's all of the church, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he's, he's letting us know that God has gifted the church, and these gifts are to equip the church so that the church does this work of ministry, so that the church itself is maturing, so that we look like, speak like, act like, who? Jesus, our Savior. The one who died, was buried, rose again, made himself known by many infallible proofs, ascended in the presence of many into the heavens, is seated at the right hand of God, waiting until he makes his enemies his footstool. This Jesus, he is to be displayed in and through the church. God is equipping us so that we look like him. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and, 
uh, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Listen, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What's he saying? We're to bear his image clearly, vividly, so that others, when they come in, when they see us, when they come in and listen, when they come in and interact, while they see individual human beings, the spirit of Christ is evident. Verse 16, and from the whole body, listen, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, each part is working properly. Every one is working properly. What happens? It makes the body grow so that it, the body, builds itself up in love. Paul is not usurping God's divine ability to cause the church to grow. He is not in competition with that. He is showing you and I the avenue through which God works. And what he's saying is God will cause the church to grow as the church is empowered by God's spirit and grows into Christ. Christ is displayed and the church causes itself, because it's empowered by God, causes itself to grow. This doesn't happen in isolation. This doesn't happen by separation. God's design for the church is to unite us together through Jesus Christ. Listen, he is our source. He is our substance. He is our subject. He is our sovereign. He is our savior. He is our sustainer. Now, as I just went through that, I had to make a clarification because when I said sovereign and subject next to one another, it made me think, well, we don't want anyone to take subject as though he's subjected to us. When I said subject, I mean, he's what we talk about. He's the one we proclaim. He is our subject. When you talk to someone about the gospel, while you may say something about yourself, please tell me you are not the subject of your gospel communication. The subject is Christ. Sometimes we, in the process of communicating about Christ, can speak about how Christ has changed us. And so we can come up in the conversation. But it ought to be heavily weighted in another direction. Our Savior is our divine and overwhelming subject. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God he is chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. In other words, God's taking all these little individual peoples and he's making us stones now. He's the, he's the cornerstone. He's the big stone. We're the little stones. 
And God is taking those little stones and, and combining them together with the big stone, Jesus Christ, and he's making a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're already in the book of Ephesians. Take a look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, God's house, a spiritual house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, in Christ, the whole structure, being joined together or fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's something special going on here. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is conveying something special about the gathering of God's people. Do you know that wherever, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, anywhere you go, God's Spirit is there with you? That's nice. It's encouraging. Sometimes convicting, right? But it's encouraging. God, where I go, God is. He'll never leave me or forsake me. This is, this is great. This is why I can be content no matter what's going on in my life because I know he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is good. This is not speaking about that individualistic presence of God. This is speaking of something else. He's talking about taking all of us individual people with all of our warts, weirdnesses, and strengths, placing us into a body as a, a special dwelling place of God. There's something unique taking place with the gathering of God's people. We should not take this event lightly. This is a divine moment. Every moment's a divine moment. I got it. This is a special and divine moment that we share together. A casual association with the church of Jesus Christ does not allow you to fulfill your ultimate purpose during this life. A casual association with the church of Jesus Christ does not allow you, it prevents you from fulfilling God's ultimate purpose in your life. God has called us together. I want us to notice this in Ephesians chapter 3. He's just told us about this building together and, and being a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, in, in the first a number of verses here, Paul talks about his own ministry and the stewardship entrusted to him. But I want us to see in verse 10 what he says about this, the results of that gospel ministry. In verse 10, he says, so that through the church, stop for a second. It's, it's a cute thing. It's, a, it's one of those cliches that has come up, and there's some truth to it, that the building isn't the church. I agree. We are the church. I agree. But just know this, you individually are not the church. You, the, your family, you're not the church. You're part of the church, you're not the church. We, the, the corporate people of God, are the church. So he says, 
so that through the church, the manifold, I love that word, it's, forgive me for a second, I want to pause, manifold, it has the idea of multifaceted, or if you're one of those that, that does um, sewing or the like, it has the idea of a tapestry, where all of these fine pieces of cloth are woven together in multi-splendor to, to, to broadcast something. And what he's telling us here is that the church is a way in which the manifold, the multiple shades and colors and dynamics of God's wisdom are on display. So that through the church, the multifold wisdom of God may, uh, might now be made known to whom? This is interesting. To the rulers. To our president. Nope. To our senate. Nope, that's not the point here. Other places, yes. Here, it's talking about some other kind of rulers. His rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. All right, now God's angels have been with him for a long time, right? Whenever he created them, that's when they, they're there. And a, a multitude of them have been there praising God. They don't know the end from the beginning. They are not eternal beings. They are finite beings created by God, glorious and wonderful and intelligent. They don't know the end from the beginning. They don't know God's plans. So as they see the work of God in the church, they feel like, look at it, and they're like, wow, that's super cool. They probably don't use that word because they're probably more refined than I am. But they're in awe. And then there are, there's another set of angels, you know, those that, that turned away from the Lord that chose to follow after Satan, a third of the angels, they're looking on too. And they have a different, they have a different take. But they're still in awe. They're probably a little peeved, a little angered, because everything they're doing is to try to prevent this from taking place. And God, because he is God, and no one can stop the plans of God, they are powerless to stop it. And they watch and they're like, Everything we're working toward, not working out. They're seeing the multifold wisdom of God through the church. We're not hanging out here just having a good time. I have a good time doing this. I hope that you enjoy it. But that's not why we're here. We're doing something far more significant than hanging out. This isn't a club. This is a place that we come together to worship a glorious, saving God who loved us enough to give us his son who bore our sin and our shame and the judgment for our sin on a cross, bloodied and naked in public display, humiliated, so God could redeem a wretch like me and a wretch like you, and we could come together, gather together, worship God, to sing his praise, and the world can say yes. That's another passage we'll look at. But the angelic beings, both good and evil, both elect and fallen, they look and say, wow, it's incredible. This is what we're doing this morning, folks. It's what we do when we get together. You can't do this by yourself on a mountain. You can't do this on a boat. 
fishing. You can't do this in the quietness of your home. Those things are all good. I love the mountains. I love the water. I love my home. I love to get, get in God's word. I love to sing his praises, whether I'm with you or without you. But it's not the same. There's something about the corporate gathering of God's people. We have to understand it. So in addition to the angelic beings seeing this and being in awe or wondering, remember we talked about 1 Peter chapter 2, it was on the screen, and we've been built up as a spiritual house. Well, in verse 9, it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, listen, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's the externalization of what's going on in our worship. We leave here with a song of praise, a testimony of praise in our mouth, a, a story that must be told to the nations. We leave here singing his praises. This is one of the, the, the results of our gathering together. So, with that being said, head over to the book of Philippians chapter 2. That was a long introduction. So we want to see these concepts in the passage that is our main passage for this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And this morning, I'm going to read this in just a moment. This morning, we must see the binding of our affections through proper gospel ministry. The binding of our affections through proper gospel ministry. And for the sake of consistency with our series through the book of Philippians, we want to again use the term gospel culture. Gospel culture. Not a culture formed by the world, not a, 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 a culture formed by, by a seminary or by tradition, a culture that is formed by the gospel itself. A gospel culture must bind our affections together. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For all, or they all, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a father with a son, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking 
in your service to me. That's a lot of, that's a lot of text. There's a lot going on here. But I, I think we'll, we'll get a sense for how, how this really matters to us and how this text should impact our affections for one another. First of all, we want to note this. We should desire to be together. We should desire to be together. Look at what he says in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. What was the point of this? He wanted Timothy to go to the Philippians to encourage them, and he wanted to know what's going on. What, what is happening in the church? How is the word of God being uh, broadcast? How is the word of God being imbibed? How is the word of God being um, processed and applied? What's happening in the church? He wanted to know this. This is important to him. He, he wanted to be cheered by news of you. So he wanted to find out what's going on. Look at verses 23 and 24. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So not only is he wanting to send Timothy for their encouragement in this report, he also is saying, well, as soon as I can get my affairs in order and everything all squared away, I want to come too. I want to minister to you too. This is not any typical thing for him. He was desirous of seeing churches regularly. And I want to remind you of what he said to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 1. He said this, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He's letting you know, I want to come and, and, and do what God's called me to do. I want to use the spiritual giftedness that God has given to me, and I want to employ it in your midst or deploy it in your midst. I want you to be encouraged, but I also want you to know I am not some super saint as though I need nothing. I will also be encouraged by you and your faith and your ministry. You see, that's the uniqueness of the body of Christ. Someone can be a scholar, a scholar in the scriptures. They can have all kinds of degrees and all kinds of experience, and they still need you. <coughs> and you may be a new Christian and have no experience and very little knowledge of Scripture, and guess what? You need us. It's the way it is. Paul makes that clear. There's something about this being together. Uh, look a, a little further. He's not just... I'm going to send Timothy to you as soon as I can. Uh, and, and, and as soon as I've got my situation squared away, I'm going to come. I want to see you. But because Timothy can't go right now, I have someone else. Uh, I, I, you need to hear from, from, from the Lord. And I need to hear back from what's going on there. So he says in verse 25, I have uh, thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been uh, distressed because you heard that he was ill. Look down at verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So in addition to the relationship with Epaphroditus, 
and the church, Paul wanted to know how they were doing so he no longer needed to be anxious. Well, we got to think this one through because I know that we're, we're reading from the book of Philippians, right? Right? And you smart people know what's coming in the book of Philippians, right? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Someone heard you were anxious one time and they said, ah, I have a verse for you, right? Well, what does it say in Philippians 4, 6? Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, Paul says, I'm anxious for the church. He's, t- he's, he's letting you on to his humanness. I want to know what's going on. I, I, I want you to be well. Remember he said uh, about, uh, to, the, to the Corinthians about how he, he, he fought and he ran and he, he wasn't one that was, was beating the air. He was going to punch someone in the face. You know, when he's going to throw a punch, it was, it was supposed to land somewhere. And when he ran, he was not going to run to come in second place, but first place. Remember that? I don't want my ministry to be in vain, emptiness. There's, there's an anxiety. I, I don't want to spend all this time and energy and effort and prayer and, and proclamation and see nothing. So Paul says, I, I am anxious for you. I don't think that he is in competition with what he says later. He's letting you know that, that it matters what happens with them. He desired to see them. He, he desired for Timothy to go. He desired for Epaphroditus to go. We should want to be together. I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I think that you can't read this and not see that. I, I don't think. Secondly, we should care about one another's well-being. We should care about one another's well-being. This is all through the text here. It's, it's incredible. Verse 19, again, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. Cheered. It's not a word we use very, very often. The word in the Greek is u, well, sukeo, souling. To soul. <laughs> I don't think you can soul. But the idea is to be well souled. To have my soul in good condition. I, I want to send Timothy to you so that my soul will be enriched and feel good, feel right. I will be encouraged. It'll be well with my soul. This is one of those things. I, I don't know how it happens because I did not hardly communicate with with Brian about the, the songs. I gave him a, a couple of little lines about what it was going to be out about. And I wanted to say, hey, can we sing It Is Well With My Soul? But I didn't. And guess what? We sang It Is Well With My Soul. I don't know. I don't want to make too much out of it, but I think the Lord was at work there for us. Paul, Paul would be encouraged in his soul. It would be well with his soul to hear about them, that they were doing well. You know what's interesting? In verse 20, a different word comes up. He says in verse 20, for I have no one like him. Now you wouldn't even have any clue that that has any relation to being cheered in the last. The word there is iso. Iso meaning together. Sukas. Soul. Interesting. Together soul. I have no one that's a together soul like Timothy. I want to hear from Timothy's report of you so that I can be well-souled because I have no one like Timothy who is same-souled like I am. There's something going on here about this, this togetherness, this affection, this, this 
what, what God does in the lives of those that are partnered, not for ourselves, not for the sake of the cornerstone church, but for the sake of the cornerstone. Not for the sake of our gospel ministry, but for the sake of the gospel. Nothing irritates me quite as bad as someone saying, so many people were saved under so-and-so's ministry. Oh, it just makes me, I, 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 I have to confess my sin when I hear it. It bothers me so badly. Folks, just, can, can you look up just for a second? Whatever you're thinking about right now, just stop. You've never saved anyone. And no human ever saved you. Can someone be an instrument? Yes. God is the God of salvation. There is no other. It is him, and it is him alone. The goal of gospel partnership is the glorification of God and the salvation of souls through his work. Paul's heart would be cheered by this ministry of partnership with a, a, a same-souled partner. Verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare or well-being. Genuinely concerned. So this is the kind of person that, that Timothy is that makes him of a same soul as Paul, that was going to result in Paul's well-souledness. You got it? Now, the word here, it's a, tough, it's a tough Greek word to spit out when you don't speak Greek very often, but it's merimimnao. Yeah. It's a word that comes up semi-frequently in our scriptures. And I want us to look at a couple of instances of it because I want to understand, I want for us to understand the, the significance of this same-souled Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Okay, take a look, please, with me at Luke 12. We're going to come right back, so hold your hand here if you would. Luke 12, verse 25. Jesus said, And which of you, by being anxious, that's Mary Minnao, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious, there's the word again, about the rest? Now, let's try to be real because it's easy to read a scripture passage and go, yeah, yeah. Unless you have a death diagnosis, right? Unless you have a terminal diagnosis. And then you think, Phew, the doctor gave me blank. And you're thinking, huh. You know, I'm ready to see God. I'm ready to not be in this body anymore. But I kind of like my wife, or I kind of like my husband. I kind of like my kids. I would like to see my grandchildren get older. You know, when, when that, like, reality comes your way, you might want to hang on for a little while, right? And so there may be this striving, this concern, that you might want to eat the right foods and take the right medicines. So that maybe your days might be prolonged so that you can minister to your spouse or children or grandchildren a little longer. That's the idea of this word, merimenao, this, this anxiety or this, I mean, not anxiety, but uh, concern. Take a look at Matthew 6. Look at verse 25 with me, please. Therefore I tell you, 
do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Stop for a minute. I don't know, maybe you probably don't have that many anxieties about whether you have any clothes on. You're probably not in a destitute situation. Maybe you don't think, where's my next meal going to come from? But what if you had nothing left? What if there's no food in the cupboards? What if you don't even have a cupboard? What if you don't have a refrigerator? What if you don't have a car? What if you have absolutely nothing? Might you be wondering what you might eat? Might it produce some possible concern? Of course it would. But if you were down to your last set of clothes and they were holy, not the kind of holy clothes like these have been sanctified, like literally there are holes in them and they're, they, they're not going to last any longer. What if you're down to that last set and there's nothing left? Might you have some concern? I think you might. I think I might. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Ooh. Imagine, I don't remember the dates and the specifics, so please just try to remember the generalities of this, this recent event where inadvertently a, a warning came out that there was a bomb coming and it was not, it was not a test. Remember, you remember the story? I, 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 the, the specifics are escaping me. But here you are, the thing goes off, and you're like, kids, let's get in the bomb shelter. Might you be anxious for tomorrow? Methinks so. I think you would be. Thank God. Here it is. This is it. You know, some of us have been in situations where we thought someone we loved was going to die, or we've been in the situation where someone in the room that we loved died in front of us. It's happened uh, to me. The, both the I thought there was going to be death, and the they have died in the room. It, it's happened to me. So I, I I can think. You know, I can I can sense what this feels like to a, to a degree. It's so easy to say, don't be anxious. But that's the, the context that we're trying to drive at is that Paul said, I, I want to be cheered. I want my soul to be well when I hear about you. Through Timothy, the same souled one like me, who has a genuine anxiousness, concern, anxiety, about your welfare. Who do you feel like that about? Where did this kind of a soul in Timothy and Paul, where did it come from? It came because God changed them. What was Paul like before his conversion? He had some zeal. <laughs> he had zeal for the law the pharisaical way and he had some zeal against the way he had some zeal against the Christ he had some zeal against the gospel and he was so passionate that he was spending all of his waking hours trying to drag people off and have them tried for their faith but God but God rescued him from that foolish zeal to give him a zeal for the wellness of God's people. See, this, this is what it's supposed to be like. 
Paul is no different other than a divine, divinely ordained for a particular task. He's no different than you and I are. Paul is not Jesus. Paul's Paul. A man given over to the Lord, ordained by the Lord, commissioned by the Lord, but he's still a man. And these affections that God gave to him and to Timothy, and as we'll see in Titus as well, or excuse me, Epaphroditus as well, he's the one that makes that affection in us. But sometimes I believe we short-circuit it because we are very well concerned about ourselves and we are very well concerned about our own family. And we isolate ourselves and we minimalize our approach we minimalize our influence. We minimalize our opportunities. That's what happens when you have a casual association with the church. In God's word, this passage, in fact, in Philippians, is, is, in a sense, calling for the church, this church, every church, to establish a different kind of culture, a gospel culture, where... I have not come to please myself, but please the Lord, and that pleasing of the Lord comes as I minister to you. We're all different. Quite frankly, we're all a bit weird. I'm, I am. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying something bad about you. I'm just saying we are weird. Every one of us has uh, eccentric tendencies. And we look at other people and say, man, they're really weird. But eventually, if you're honest, you start to realize, well, I just said someone was weird, and I do that same thing. <laughs> Maybe it's not just them. God is calling us to a different culture, a gospel culture that is concerned about him. Timothy's concern for them reached the level of concern one has in the midst of distress. Verse 21, back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. For they, other people, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, he's already spoken to us about this. Look back at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I think I would challenge you to memorize and meditate on Philippians 2, 3 and 4. It's very easy to spout off. It's very, very difficult to actually, by God's grace, live out. By God's grace, it's actually very easy to live out. Unfortunately, we don't always live by grace. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul was saying that Timothy has this kind of a spirit. It's good. Uh, we should care about one another's well-being. Verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. He, he's, his, his testimony, the way he's carried himself, listen, listen to how he describes this. How as a son with a father. Is, that's relational, no? That happens in a gospel culture where there's this family element. When we're, when we're apart, it's like, I'm missing something. I'm not with my family. You know, I'm, I'm, I was away uh, this last Sunday because I was down in Newport, and then I was away this week because I was down in terrible Pennsylvania. Sorry, I'm only kidding. I'm just kidding. 
um, with other people. And, and it was nice to be with, with the people in Newport and the people in Pennsylvania. But there's, there's a same solidness here that's missing because God unites us. And he's talking about Timothy and Paul, their relationship, how is a father with a son? Like that, like I've, got, I've got three sons. I have, man, there's no one that can replace them. They're, they're, they're special to me. Like I love you and everything, but you're not my son. If it comes down to it, I, I'm, I'm going to take care of my son. It's my job. And, he's, and he uses that relationship. That comes from a gospel culture. That's not natural. How as a father with a son, he has served with me. I'm going to find my place again. In the gospel. Verse 20, 25 now. Let's take a look. As we, as we move from Paul and Timothy to now Epaphroditus. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. There's that relationship. Fellow worker. Who are we working for? The church. Mm -mm -mm. We're working for, for God. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, seeing how we are fellow workers with God. Like, that is just, woo, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to say. Uh, God's my co-worker. No, not, no. But I'm working with him because in chapter 5, he has given me the ministry of reconciliation and you. And he has called us to be ambassadors for him, yes, as though, listen carefully, as though God were pleading through us. This, what, when I give the gospel, it's like God pleading with someone. What a precious jewel. What a perspective. We have this treasure in earthen veils, uh, vessels. The power is not of us. And we're workers together with God. And, and Paul says, Epaphroditus is one of these fellow workers. And he, and he is passionate and willing to lay down his life because he's a fellow soldier. Listen, not every soldier lays down their life, right? But everyone that signs up, signs up willing to lose their life. They might not think about it. They may not be in the forefront of the mind. Hey, I might have to lay down my life. But that's what you're doing when you sign on the dotted line. Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier. He's ready to give, to give, to give to the very end with nothing left. He's my buddy. He's my brother. He's your messenger when he's ministered to my need. Do you feel the relationship here? Can you just take a minute and Look around. Look around. Look. If, perchance, you don't feel that way, you're missing out. This is not to, to pound the pulpit and you would say, do this. This is to say, this is what our lives are supposed to be for. And if you're not, if I'm not, I'm missing out. This is, God has given us a wonderful treasury of a stewardship. And we have fellow workers. They might think differently and speak differently and smell differently and do differently. They have different perspectives and personalities and everything else. 
So what? You think Paul and Timothy were exactly the same? You think Epaphroditus was the same? You saw Peter and Paul get into it. You saw Barnabas and Paul get into it. Yes? I wonder if they think about that now. I bet you they're not. I bet you they're as like-souled as ever as they saw Jesus. And they became like him, or they saw him as he is. (laughs) Are you a believer? Um, You're going to spend eternity with all of these people that have trusted Christ. Maybe not everyone in here has. But everyone in here that has trusted Christ, you're going to spend eternity with them. Why don't we... Why don't we establish the kind of gospel culture now that enables us to have this same solidness, to care about one another's well-being, even if we see things differently? We have a commission. This wisdom and this way is not natural. I cannot, by sheer determination, decide, hey, Uh, you and I think differently. I'm just going to set it all aside and we're going to be fine. It's not going to work. Organizations try it all the time. They have the MBTI specialists come in, right? They have uh, weekends where they're going to team build. And it might help, right? I'm not not dismissing it. Like, I'm an MBTI expert. Mm, I have a certification. Great for me. Um, But... Like, it might help a little bit. There's some, some good information that you get out of those things. But it does not give a oneness. It just starts to help us to understand each other a little bit better. So it's helpful, but not, it doesn't, you don't become one. We might have ourselves a, a, a weekend where we say, all right, let's, let's, let's come together and we're going to put together a, a mission statement, a vision statement, and these, these, uh, pillars to our, to our being as, a, as, a, as, a, as an organization. And those things help because they, they clarify where we're going. But it doesn't eliminate differences of opinion. But I'll tell you what, what can do that. When you and I come to faith in Christ and God places his spirit, his spirit within us, and then subsequently... You and I learn to yield ourselves. To yield ourselves. Uh, in, in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. In Romans 6, he talks about, I'm, I'm dead, my old man is dead. And then he says, yield yourself as an instrument of righteousness to God rather than yield yourself to Uh, wickedness of your flesh. That's not the term, but that's the idea, right? So subsequently, after our salvation and God placing his spirit in us, as we yield ourselves to the spirit, and instead of Rob being here, present with you, I'm a yielded person, and now Christ is active in me, and and you yield yourself, right? So instead of it being so-and-so, now it's Christ active in you, you know what? We may still, because we still have our intellects, even when submitted to the Spirit, we would have disagreements in, the, in, in specifics. But if we're both yielded to the Spirit, we can get along. 
and we can serve, and we can proclaim the gospel, and we can minister. We can do this because it's not us. It's not us. And that's what's going on with Paul. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about them. He's anxious for them. That's what's going on with Timothy because Timothy is same-souled with Paul. And so he's ready to, to do what's necessary to find out. And Epaphroditus, this guy's a unique cat, right? Because he got like really, 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 really sad, right? Because the Philippian church was sad that he was sick. That ain't natural. But when the Spirit of God is at work in us, that's what it looks like. That's an evidence of the Spirit's work. So you and I, what we need to do, and we're going to just close it here in just a moment. We need to consider if this is what is happening in us. And if it is not, there's hope. Hope, number one, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, uh, today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death, fully capable of cleansing you from every sin forever. And when you trust him as, his, as your savior, his righteousness is added to you and your sin is removed from you. You can have the spirit then placed in your life and you have the ability then to surrender your will to God and have this that we're talking about. That's one. Number two, if you're a believer, stop thinking about yourself. Stop it. Give it up. There's something better that God has in store for you than thinking about yourself. He'll take care of that. Right? You consider what God's plan for your life is and let God consider himself with you. Not a bad person to place yourself in, in his hands, right? Which is what Jesus' point was back in those both Luke 12 and Matthew 6. Hey, do the, do the lilies of the field sit there wondering, how will I be beautiful? No, God clothes them better than Solomon. Do the birds of the air wonder where will they get their next meal? No, they do what birds do, and God provides them with food. Do what you're supposed to do. Me, I need to do what I'm supposed to do. Get out of the way. Love God. Worship God. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. With you. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. Uh, there are things that we struggle with. Uh, we, are, we are fleshly, uh, and sometimes our sinfulness we allow to control us. And so we ask that you'd help us now in this moment to yield ourselves, ourselves to you, to allow your spirit to have his way in us, to produce within us righteousness, joy, and concern for one another. Do your work, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.